ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Richard Fitzpatrick is a marine biologist and cameraman, and he sees things the rest of us will never get to see. He spent large parts of his life in and around the Great Barrier Reef, and sometimes his job requires him to do extraordinary things, stepping gingerly across the shells of an army of turtles, filming a cluster of tiny, tiny coral polyps as they throw out little tentacles and go to war. Richard does a lot of shark research, and he has an unusually hands-on relationship with them. In the past, he's managed to lasso tiger sharks, and he's even ridden on the back of a tiger shark. And then he invented a shark claw that keeps a shark relatively docile so he can clip on an electronic tag and see where it goes. I spoke with Richard some years ago after he'd finished making a landmark TV documentary the three-part Great Barrier Reef, in conjunction with the BBC. Hello, Richard. Hello, Richard. There's some viral internet footage around the place, which you've shown me just before we went to air, of a great white shark swallowing a camera. Your camera. What happened that day, please? Well, it was quite a while ago now. I was down in South Australia doing uh, some research on great white sharks, and my job was simply to get some pictures of the great white so we could ID them as they came in close to the boat. So what we'd do is we had one of the guys would throw a tuna head into the water and drag it into the duckboard. And I was standing on the duckboard and I had my well, cam- On the edge of the boat. On, on the, the edge of the yeah. boat, yeah. So right on the edge of the water. Um, I had a camera on a pole and a video lead running up to a little monitor strapped around my neck so I could see what the camera was uh, filming. And so the great whites would come nice and close. And there was this one particular big male. It was about five metres long. And um, he swam past the camera and being a aspiring cameraman at the time I thought I'll let it swim out of shot and let it clear the frame and the bloody thing just turned around and I was watching blue water and I was just oh what's that and then suddenly I saw this nose and teeth and then suddenly the shark swallowed the the camera and because it was tied on my neck as the shark turned I got dragged into the water head first uh, by this great white so 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 the great white has got its mouth around the camera the camera that's attached to you, and you're now in the water. Yes. And <laughs> camera doesn't taste nice, though. No, the camera doesn't taste nice. But, um, yeah, for me, it was a very bizarre experience because I'm thinking, oh, it's a shark mouth. Oh, I'm in the water. It's like a virtual shark attack. And um, <laughs> the guys on the boat just grabbed me by the foot and literally hauled me out of the water feet first. And luckily, the shark spat the camera out. We've got this great shot where you, know, you see it go all the way to the back of the throat. So you see the back of the throat of a great white and the gills flare out and the light comes through the gills. You can see out through the gill filaments and all that kind of stuff. I've actually made quite a bit of money from that one shot and used in many documentaries. But it was an amazing, bizarre experience. And so much so that it was one of those things where I thought, oh, no, I was in my late 20s and I came back and what am I doing with my life? You know, I've almost died. So I came back from that trip and proposed to my girlfriend who subsequently became my ex-wife. So I tell people, <laughs> don't make rash decisions after a near-death experience. So. That's the real danger with the shark attack? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. it wasn't the shark. It was the, um, <laughs> it was the consequences. But yeah, no, it, was a, it was a very bizarre experience. Was there time to experience abject terror while this was happening? Oh, for sure. You know, when people, you know, they talk about when you're in a high-risk, dangerous situation, how time slows. It it definitely slowed for me. I remember watching that whole mouth opening up. Like, for me, the whole event took minutes. 
but when we played back, it was just mere seconds. So it was um, a very surreal experience. Why did it attack you, do you think, in the camera? Well, see, we were using dead tuna baits. And so when you throw the tuna in the water, then the shark can see the tuna baits. It can smell the tuna baits. But the eyes on a great white's head are on the side. So what sharks do is at the last instance before they um, bite their prey, the food item, um, they can't actually see it. So they rely on these electrical receptors on their snout. It's like little black dots, and they're called ampullae of Lorenzini. So it's the sixth sense that sharks have, that they can feel bioelectric fields from all living animals. And So these are the little electrical signals that go through our nervous systems? Yeah, yeah. Our they bodies, can smell our nervous system, they can, in other words. Yeah, they can feel those bioelectric fields through the water. And you know, things like hammerheads are really well-in-tuned and have the weird hammer so they can detect stingrays and fish buried in the sand by the bioelectric fields being given off. But with the great white, when you're feeding them baits and stuff like that, there's no live bioelectric field coming off you know, a dead tuna head. And so as the great white was coming in for the tuna head, it's like, oh, there's an interesting electrical signature, a la the camera in the water. And so it went for the electrical signature and bit the camera. Oh, it wasn't yours. No, it was the camera. It was the camera giving off the bo- you know, this electrical field, so the shark zeroed in on it. <laughs> so even, I mean, you know, the old days and the old Cousteau docos and stuff like that, they used to show, you know, the great whites biting the cage and all that kind of stuff. And they go, oh, you know, there's a crazy shark. But they weren't. It's just the metal in the water gives off an electric field and the sharks get confused by, you know, electric fields and they'll, they'll hone in on it and try and taste and see what it is. A large part of your, your research is into tiger sharks. How are they different from great whites? Um well, they're very different, actually. Um, I mean, the tiger's the largest sort of tropical predator we have is great whites stick to the cooler water. And um, they're very different personalities. You know, great whites are always pretty edgy. And when you're in the water with them, you can always tell they're sort of working at an angle to come and investigate you and stuff like that. Whereas tigers, I sort of compare them to being sort of punch-drunk prize fighters. You know, they're big and bully and they kind of <laughs> meander in and they're not as fast. Um and you can beat them off. You know, I've had tigers on me a few times and the joys of being an underwater cameraman is you have this big bloody camera in front of you to use as a shield. What, what do you mean on you? What does that mean? Oh, they'll come in and, and investigate. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in the water with these tigers when they're feeding on um, rays and turtles and all that kind of stuff. And then you can actually... And the tigers will feed and you can spend hours in the water with them and literally swimming up that close to them feeding on these objects that um i've had occasions where i've had to push myself back off the shark but at some point the tiger will go wait a minute what what are you and then come and you can see you can almost see that moment in their eye where they go click i'm going to have a go and they'll turn and and come in and then you just hit them off with the camera and they're like "Hmm, okay i'll go back to my food now how big do they get uh, up to biggest one I've been in the water with is about five meters long. Oh, so, right, that, so, that's massive. Oh yeah, they're huge. They're like a, um, it's like a freight train, and they are fat. They're just so bulky. You know, the difference between a four meter tiger and a five meter tiger is probably almost half a ton. You know, they're just sort of this almost exp- exponential growth, and their girth is can be absolutely phenomenal. I mean, so, so is the reason why they're so, uh, uh, I don't know laid back compared to the Great White is because there's just so much food around for them in the Great Barrier Reef. Oh, yeah, nothing's going to pick on them either. And, and you know, they can take their time. You know, they're, what I've been learning about them over the years, they're very strategic animals. You know, 
I should give them a lot more credit to their intelligence, what they are. And, you know, we've been satellite tracking them and following their movements where they will go thousands of kilometres to an island where the turtles are mass nesting. And they know when to go there and they all congregate there. And they're not there to eat um, the living turtles. They know that every day a couple of turtles will die on the beach from exhaustion. And when the tide comes up, it's an easy meal, you know. They don't have to f- chase down a turtle. They can just go up and feed. And, you know, during the making of this series, at one stage we had 20 tigers on one turtle carcass. And they were all taking their turns, sort of feeding and break off and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, the, the thing that fascinates me about sharks is that we know so little. And, look, every time you get in the water with an animal, you come out with more questions than answers. You'll see something different happen and think, well, what's happening there, you know. So... Um, to, that's why I love the tiger sharks because a lot of people work on great whites very few people work on tigers so they've always sort of been this, the poor second cousin you know they're in the top three most dangerous so you've got the bull the tiger and the um, the great white but yeah, it's just that unknown um, with the tigers and and the fact that you can you know spend a lot of time in the water with them and get that close to them and that personal with them they're an amazing animal you know well we're interested in them um, and if you if you can, if you've got the courage to get up close to them or the knowledge to get up close to them, are they as interested in us? Um, they kind of tolerate us when we're in the water with them, um, but you know, at some point, as I said, they will sort of have a go. Um, we had one female during the making of this recent BBC series, and I must say, after all my life working with sharks, is the first time I th- I really felt I was being um, stalked, and um, <laughs> we had this. Stalked by a tiger shark. By a tiger, yeah. And she was only about three and a half metres long. And, um, you know, she was the first tiger to show up this day. And we hopped in the water when she showed up. And she was just doing big circuits around us. And there was this dead turtle carcass that we were drifting with, just waiting to see what was going to show up. And she stayed at a distance for probably the first half an hour or so. And then a few other tigers started to show up. And so it was myself and my dive buddy would, would swim in under the turtle. And this is, you know, it's probably about 2,000 metres of water below us. So it's out in the open water. And any time a smaller tiger went for the turtle, she would sort of come in and push it away. as you know, very much a dominance routine. And then when we tried to get closer to the turtle, she would swim in between us and the bait. And then, you know, sometimes we're feeling, oh, it's getting a little bit far away from our, our mother boat that was drifting next to us. And we'd think, oh, we'd swim back close to the boat. And then she'd position herself between the boat and us. And she was then the circles were getting ever decreasing. And by that stage, we had six tigers in total. So you got, you know, six tigers you're trying to keep focus on. You know, I'm filming as many as I can. My dive body's trying to keep track of the ones I'm not looking at. And because you're out in the open water, they're coming from below you, around you. You know, you really have to have eyes in the back of your head. And then, you know, after about an hour, she was like, okay. And she started to make runs in at us. Well, And you could just tell the body positioning and she was really upset. Like the pectoral fins dropped down and she was swimming fast and just coming in and, and um, having a go at us, essentially. So it would knock her off with the camera and my um, safety well, you, diver you, had You a, push her away? Yeah, you just hit her. Hit her? Hit her. Yeah. Well, so just, just a bit of a jab? Yeah, you just put the camera out so she'd run into the camera and think, oh, you know, that's... Ow. Ow. That's not a good thing to eat. And she came in... We've got some great shots. She'd come in and open her mouth and, like, eat, try and eat the end of the camera. And so that appeared a fair bit in the documentary, looking down the throat of it. And then... Um, yeah, uh, just over an hour, my dog buddy sort of signalled, you know, 
that's it. You know, it's time, time to get, to get out. out. And so that's, that's the art with working with sharks is everyone thinks we're crazy, but actually to know when to get out is the important part. And so he quickly went to the surface, signaled to our support boat. So the Zodiac zipped in straight above us. And um, I remember signaling to, to him going, yeah, yeah, cool, we'll get out. And the boat was around, came in above, and I turned around and was like, oh, he's gone. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And as soon as he left the water, the, all six sharks just started to converge. And I was like, oh, it just kept spinning around with the camera, just sort of pushing them off. And then um, so I swam up under the Zodiac, and then these hands reached over, grabbed the camera, and the camera was hoiked, hoiked into the Zodiac. And then So suddenly, that's your weapon. Suddenly, I, yeah, I actually looked around and thought, Oh, I've got nothing. And um, you can, uh, I've done it a few times now, you can leap out of the water and full scoop of gear <laughs> into a boat quite easily when you need to. Um, like, it's amazing what adrenaline can do. Like, like a Warner Brothers cartoon or something like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. One of the most exciting things in that series I've seen was the sequence that you filmed with a parrotfish at night. What do they do while they sleep? Well, a parrotfish is unusual in that they make a mucus sleeping bag that they sleep inside. So every night they build this mucus sleeping bag. And, you know, being a marine biologist, when this series came up, I just had this whole list of, you know, nerdy things I really wanted to film that hadn't been done before. And one was... How do the parrotfish make this mucus sleeping bag? Like a like a like a bubble, or yeah, like a whole a, bubble that that envelops the whole animal while they're in some crevasse, a little a little cave. Yeah, uh, so they'll, they'll in, in the, wedge in the themselves in, yeah, just a hole amongst the reef, under the coral, amongst the coral, and stuff like that, and secrete these mucus bags. And so we set up a time lapse camera um, in front of the the, the parrotfish, and uh, and. Just watching the footage back, I was just blown away to see how it happened. So it's essentially the parrotfish slothed a whole layer of mucus from around its head because uh, you know, they're a very mucusy kind of fish. But then it kept drawing water in through its mouth and pumping the water out through the gills like most fish do. But the, the gills were inside the, the mucus bubble. And so it was essentially blowing up this mucus sleeping bag with every breath. Inflating it with water. Inflating it with water. And then it actually travelled down the whole body until it went to the end of the tail. And the whole process took about 40 minutes. So why does it do that? Why, why does it make this cocoon? There's a few different ideas. No one knows for sure, but one idea is that because the parrotfish are, um, you know, well, a, lot of, a lot of reef fish, they sleep at night amongst the reef. And, you know, you imagine going to sleep out on the reef at night with no lights, nothing. You know, I mean, it must be absolutely terrifying for an animal to think am i going to make it through the night because there's all these other predators out there that are nocturnal that could just eat you so one idea is that this mucus sleeping bag keeps the odor of the parrotfish inside so things like moray eels and some of the reef sharks can't actually smell them at night so it's containing its odor another idea is that the bag itself can act as like a, um, a pressure gradient so if a predator bumps into the bubble you know it it sort of causes a, a water pressure inside that alerts the fish and it just takes off at high speed uh, to escape. So it's like a, um, you know, a, a first early response, warning. Yeah. early warning system. So, yeah, no one actually really defined exactly what it does, but it's an amazing thing to see. And um, Watch a parrotfish in its sleep, in its sleep, slowly cough out yeah. a little mucus bubble for it to live in. A sleeping bag of snot. That's, that's right. 
<laughs> charming, but hey, you know, whatever works, whatever gets you through the night, as exactly. they say. Exactly. But it doesn't always work for the parrotfish because, yeah, as we talked about earlier, these bioelectric fields, you know, even... So its its heartbeat is still giving it away at night. So you know, every time the heart beats, there's a little bioelectric field goes out. So maybe the bubble helps to mask it a bit. But one of the other sequences we did was the um, white tip reef sharks hunting the um, fish at night, and you know, it's another animal I do research on is the white tip reef shark, and they've got a real Jekyll and Hyde personality. And a lot of people would have seen white tips when they go snorkeling and visiting the reef. They're the classic little reef shark that sits on the bottom, a couple of feet long, a couple maybe, of feet yeah. long, sitting on the bottom, and um, but at night, they become voracious predators, you know, they, and they will just zip around the reef and they will go in amongst the crevices and the caves because the white tip, it's an unusual reef shark in that it, it doesn't have to constantly swim to breathe. It can physically pump water across its gills through what we call buccal pumping. So it can go into areas where other sharks fear to go, you know, to get caught. So the white tip will fold its fins over and will squeeze into caves and ledges looking for sleeping fish. And uh, so that makes it the perfect nocturnal predator. So imagine, you know, you're the little parrotfish nice in your little sleeping bag in a nice deep crevice. A shark could come in at any moment. And that's what the white tips are doing. They're queuing in on these bioelectric fields to find their sleeping prey at night. And I've seen these sharks... You know, grab a parrotfish and then they just start thrashing around to rip it apart and destroy huge amounts of coral. You know, I've been on dives where people go, oh, look at all oh, that coral's been damaged. Must be, you know, a careless diver or an anchor. And it's like, no, it's most likely a white tip ripping all the coral apart to get to a sleeping fish on the inside. One of the bits of footage that made me and my kids hold our breaths is a parrotfish in a little crevasse in the reef, surrounded by its little bubble and a reef shark cruises past and the parrotfish holds its breath yeah that was pretty amazing we only really noticed that during the edit um because we shot so much stuff with all these hunting sequences but yeah these parrotfish i don't know how they sensed it or you know maybe they just saw the silhouette of the shark because it's asleep past. isn't it it's it's still asleep yeah well they don't or half awake or... Yeah, well, fish don't have eyelids so they can't close their eyes so the idea is that you know they're basically turning off their their visual cues to their brain but yeah this parrotfish was obviously sensing something was happening it could have been even the wake of you know the sharks because those sharks was swimming really close past it and Basically, it was holding its breath. It was like, you know, Anne Frank in the attic and the Nazis coming by, isn't it? And that's a crazy analogy, but oh, it, it yeah. felt like that moment. You can't help but want to. And, and for, for you to be there at night in an underwater cave off the, you know, the Great Barrier Reef in this kind of little network of little caves there, watching these reef sharks go about looking for these. I know what's that like for you. It's pretty bizarre, actually, because, you know, you've been in... You just squeeze your body into these caves and you can sometimes you can have like half a dozen sharks in there with you. And how long are you down there? Oh, just normal dive time, an hour or so. But we'd do a couple of dives a night with the sharks and following them around. And um, <laughs> I do remember there was this one poor, this is a really, really old female shark and she was emaciated. And um, there was at one stage she came in and we've seen it a few times out there now where the sharks have pretty well got to the end of their life and they're just like it's a swimming spine with skin hanging off it and this poor thing she just kept bumping into me like you know, and she tried to bite a few times you know not hard or just really weak attempts because she was pretty well literally hours from death but she just wouldn't leave us alone so i ended up having to when i was shooting one of those sequences i've got her by the tail and and got her body between my legs so i'm pinning the shark 
while filming the other sharks uh, eating parrotfish. And it was just one of those things that I thought if someone had a, a second camera, a making-of camera, they'd just be thinking that is a pretty bizarre <laughs> image of you know, a shark between your legs while you're filming other ones feeding. But yeah, these are Stay. some of the weird things that happen to us. You've got some footage of Rain Island. Now, Rain Island, I understand, is this kind of little sandy atoll in the Great Barrier Reef, somewhere near the Great Barrier Reef, just this little little tiny bit of land there. And what is it, every year, sea turtles. The yeah. turtles come there to lay their eggs. How many sea turtles? Well, it varies from year to year. Now, Rain Island's right at the tip of Cape York almost, and it's right on the edge of the Barrier Reef. And so the island is 800 metres long, 300 metres wide. And so it's right on the edge of the reef, and it is the largest nesting site for green sea turtles in the world. It's also the most significant nesting site for seabirds and on the whole Great Barrier Reef as well. And on average year, you can get four to 5,000 turtles coming up onto the females, coming up onto the beach uh, through, the, through the summer months to lay eggs. Um, but about four years ago, we had 26,000 turtles on the beach in an hour. So national parks go there each year and they do counts. And so the count is done in a one-hour walk around the island you basically have a team of people counting the turtles between you and the next person to count them. So it's an indicator. So there's probably more turtles come during the night than what is done in this indicated count. But, yeah, it's 26,000. 26,000. Is, is there any sand visible under, underneath all that sea of turtle? In a lot of areas, no. And so you'd actually walk on the back, back of the shells of the turtles sometimes to get from spot to spot. And you had to be really careful because um, they'll pack that tightly if you – put your foot down between them, you could get it crushed. Um, what do you mean? Like, them. What, they bite, they're bitey, are they? No, they're mean? not bitey, just the shells. I mean, these are big animals. They're the size of a coffee table and they weigh, you know, sort of 80, 100 kilos or so. And they're just moving around and blundering around and, you know, the shells smacking together and all that kind of stuff. And it's um, it's pretty amazing. But at that, that kind of density, you know, it's just visually one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. But the success rate of those turtles nesting was very low that year. There was just too many turtles. You know, a lot of them just couldn't find a vacant spot to lay eggs. And then the others are all digging up eggs that have been laid previously as well. Uh, so it's just one of those amazing spectaculars. And it was just lucky that we we're up there filming it. And, you know, the, the, the footage in the series just shows this sea of turtles coming up out of the ocean. It's just amazing sight. And it's truly... You know, rain's probably the only place in Australia that I know of that you have Galapagos Island scale type events happening where the density of life is that high. Uh, but luckily, it's also the most highly protected island on the reef. So, you know, only researchers are allowed to go up there and it's all closely monitored. But it's an amazing location. If you're not an apex predator, you've got to have a survival strategy. Yes, um, And I know everyone asks you about this, but I'm going to ask you about it. The pearl fish. When you call it a pearl fish, there's not much that's pearlescent about it, is it? It's really kind of like a big eel, really, isn't it? Yeah, I think the pearl fish, the name came from the fact that they used to, the divers used to find them living inside um, pearl oysters as well. But it is it's one of those things I've always wanted to film. I had heard the myth of the pearl fish and the story of the pearl fish. And in the series, we spent a lot of time um, in deep water, just between reefs. I really want to explore all these new environments. And this is where we came across the pearl fish. So it's a, eel, a long fish, like an eel, living out in the middle of nowhere on the sand. There isn't many places to hide out there. And so the one place that the pearl fish likes to hide is up the anus of a sea cucumber. Now, a sea cucumber looks like a loaf of bread. It's related to the starfish. It's sitting out on the sand. It eats the sand. So it's like a biological vacuum cleaner. 
And um, because it eats the sand, its head is in the sand all the time, so it can't get a, a clean breath. And how these things breathe is they actually breathe through their bum. And so the pearl fish will come up to a, a sea cucumber and you know, check out which end is which. And then basically um, it'll bump into the pearl, into the sea cucumber. And like most animals, if you've got something trying to go up your rear end, it, the sea cucumber just clenches. But the pearl fish knows that the sea cucumber eventually has to open up and take a breath and in it goes. <laughs> And you know it's pretty safe up there too, isn't it? As it turns out, not pleasant. I'm guessing. Uh, uh, who else safe. is going to? Yeah, it's a it's a, a good safe home. That, it's a very good safe home. Is there any sign that the sea cucumber objects to this this uh, uh, unwanted tenant? Yeah, I saw this this one poor sea cucumber. It had this is the third pearlfish going inside it, and as it went inside, <laughs> it actually like reared up like a snake, and you could almost hear it just right. win- wincing, going, "Oh, come on!" That's you know? it. Yeah, they're so on out. <laughs> I did feel sorry for that particular sea cucumber. Yeah. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. Were you one of those kids with a huge fish tank in your bedroom, Richard, when you were growing up? Yes, I was. You were that guy? Yeah, I was definitely that guy. I was a fish nerd from the early days. So, Yeah, no, I was lucky to have very tolerant parents that allowed me to um, sort of get into the whole marine aquarium stuff when I was quite young, actually. And, and then quite a few of my friends I was growing up with also got into it. And you know, a lot of us ended up becoming marine biologists. So it's been, you know, it's, the reef and marine animals have always been part of my life. So what, did you have, what did you have in the tank? Oh, when I was young, I had an epaulette shark and stonefish. Well, my mate and myself. A stonefish? Yeah. We oh, used don't to... they exude one of the most toxic venoms known to human humankind? Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, so I got stung a few times and growing up. And um, What do but... you do when you get stung stung by a st- I thought that was it. I thought you were brown no, bread no, after no, you get... No, it's not bad. No, you get minus no. things. God, I've had so many stings from those things. Hot water is a good, good treatment with those, those animals. But, yeah, being a teenage boy... Myself and my best mate at the time, Dougal, just we love keeping the venomous animals and the most dangerous things possible. So, you know, the sharks and moray eels and all that kind of stuff. So, and you know, his dad was a science teacher at our high school, and used to take us out to the Keppel Islands every couple of weeks, and and um, we'd go out and snorkel around and collect our own animals and bring them back. So it was an awesome way to learn about the reef is through collecting them and, and bringing them back and observing them and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's all pretty cool. Now, moray eels are a bit bitey. They've got powerful jaws on them and little sharp teeth, don't they? Tell me about the day it escaped. Yeah, well, yeah, poor old mum. Um, she came home one day yes, and one of, the, one of the eels had gotten out of the tank. They had, How? Well, they're very good escape artists. And moray eels, you know, when they live on a reef top, they can go at low tide, they can actually go from tide pool to tide pool out of the water like a snake and wriggle around and they can just um wriggle through the smallest apertures and so i thought i had the lid on the tank you know secure enough but yeah the eel had a, another idea um so yeah i had to swap the um more eel with dougal for another animal because mum said no more more how, how was the how was the escape deal discovered oh well, mum came home opened the door and apparently it was just there at the front door and um <laughs> 
so yeah, she had to scoop it up and put it in. But you know, it was um, no, it was really cool. Yeah, and my first shark talk, I think I was in year eight, and I took we took a live shark into high school. How? I was a, in an esky and an aerator with the salt water. It was an epaulette shark, and they can sit and pump water across the gills. And um, yeah, right, they can, they can actually sit on the reef, can't they? Oh, out, out, out out of water. Yeah, they can. They can, like an eel, they can go from pool to pool out of the water. And yeah, they're an amazing shark because they can actually tolerate zero percent oxygen in the water. Um, you know, out out on the reef top, if they get caught at low tide. In the middle of summer, you know, those rock pools can go over 40 degrees and all the oxygen sucked up. And these sharks can still survive. They're an amazing uh, predator. And we did a bit of a sequence on them in the BBC series because having kept them as a kid, I, wa- I really wanted to break people's perceptions about what sharks were. And these are a beautiful shark. They've got spots all over them. And, um, yeah, it is great. And How cool to bring it to school, though, in an esky. I mean, uh, that must have got you serious cred. Was the teacher... Uh Cool with this? Yeah, he was. Um, it was an English class actually. And I remember for years after that, I used to have students come up to me going, oh, "Yeah, the teacher was telling us that you brought a shark to school." You know, we thought he was just telling stories, but now he used to say, "Yeah, no, I actually did." So, <laughs> uh, one of the, of course, occupational hazards of being a diver and photo- photographing things is the bends. When was the first time you got the bends? Um, I was 16, so I think I might have been the youngest in Australia at the time. So at that stage, we are living down in um, South Australia, and I was doing my deep diving course. This one day, it was really bad weather, and we were diving a, um, a barge in about 120 feet of water, and it was really bad conditions. And you know, we went down as a, a group, and I was at the back of the group, and they all went inside the wreck, and there was just sediment and sand and stuff coming out everywhere. You couldn't see anything in there, so I just stayed out and... After a few minutes, you know, people just started coming out a bit freaked out, you know, and then um, basically the visibility was that bad. We all got separated and I couldn't find the anchor line to go back to the surface. And so I was by myself in the end and just made an ascent. So I I didn't come up too fast. You know, one of the things is, you know, um, even if you run out of air at the bottom, as you come up, the air expands in the tank. You know, because it's about yeah thirty odd meters, so it's three atmospheres. So the 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 air volume inside still allows you to get a a few breaths up on the way up. And so I made it up and it was okay. We weren't too freaked out. The next day I did a few more dives, and the day after I collapsed and um, had decompression sickness. Actually, it was just before Christmas, so I ended up in hospital and sleeping a lot with a good cerebral bend. (laughs) But yeah, it's good to get that stuff out of the way early. Yeah, it was another nice diving accident. It was um, We'd been diving on the end of this jetty with a group of my mates and um, we'd finished our dives and we're coming back along the jetty and one of my mates grabbed my face mask and just threw it off the jetty like, ha-ha, go get it. And So it was about 30 foot of water, so I just I still had my wetsuit and weight belt on, so I just jumped in and just free-dived down about 30, 30 feet to get the mask. And as I was getting down, I could just see the mask just a few feet away and I had this excruciating pain in my head. The sinus cavity, and so I kept trying to equalise and push down, and I grabbed the mask. And when I turned around to come back up to get a breath, oh, the pain was unbelievable, and it was just like so I knew something was really wrong. And so I went back down again, tried to come up slowly, and the pain came back. So I went down, tried to come back up slowly, and I realised I couldn't actually swim back to the surface to take a breath because of the pain. And so I thought the only thing I could do is just drop my weight belt and hopefully. I'll you know, force myself to the surface. So I dropped my weight belt and shot to the surface. But what had happened was, um, unbeknownst to me, inside my sinus cavity I had some polyps growing and they're about the size of grapes. And as I had gone down, the, these two polyps 
inside my sinus cavity had wedged into the eustachian tubes. And so as I kept equalizing, I was building up the pressure inside my sinus cavity to um, yeah, about 30 feet to another atmosphere. So as I was coming up, the air had nowhere to go. Um, so, so it was trapped inside it was your trapped head. inside the sinus cavity. So that airspace actually had to double in size on the way up. And to do that, it just fractured through you know the front of my, my skull. And um, whew, let me tell you the, the pain. You know, so the guys saw me come up and I was sort of floating and they jumped in the water and carried me up. And Were you conscious at this point? No, not at that stage. It sort of blacked out. And then I came to on the jetty and it just felt like every tooth in my jaw was getting pulled out by a pair of pliers because your, your teeth nerves are connected to your sinus nerves. And I think I blacked out again then and then, you know, into the doctor, into hospital, spent you know, over a week getting sort of reconstructive surgery done inside my head to clear out these polyps. But, you know, so, yeah, that and then the year later, you know, getting bent, um, my mother was a little freaked out with my whole idea of, um, you know, this. Sorry, is that what is that what getting <laughs> is that what getting the bent is called? Getting bent is it? Getting bent. Yeah, that's right. It does have other um, uses that <laughs> phrase in in popular society, but yes. Tell me, Richard, about the day you and your friend Shane first invented the technique of shark lassoing. I've seen footage of you doing this. It's real. It does happen. You do have lassoed sharks. Yes. Uh, tell me how how you invented this this technique. We're actually working as stuntmen on a movie on the island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, yeah. Which is, you know, Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando and um, Ron and Val Taylor, absolute underwater legends. We, you know, I've known them forever and they called me and Shane in to do stunt work for them and, and shark wrangling for this, this um, movie shoot. So basically the sharks had to, you know, feed on these dummies and stuff like that. But, you know, historically tigers have been used a lot in movies, especially James Bond movies. You watch any James Bond movie with a shark in it, it's a tiger. But when you look closely at the shark, you'll see a hook mark. And, you know, the poor animals look like they're drugged and all that kind of stuff. So we really didn't want to have to hook a shark for the filming purposes. To make Val Kilmer look good, yeah. To make mm-hmm. Val Kilmer look good, mm-hmm. yeah, exactly. So then we're out at, out at the reef and we had um, some baits out the back and it was a beautiful day and this big tiger is just cruising around the back and Shane is just like, well, I reckon we can just grab it. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And he just grabbed a rope and he goes, you get the front, I'll get the back. And so, I mean, I don't know what was going through our heads, but we just leapt off the boat. So I dived on the back of the shark and grabbed the pectoral fins and Shane just jumped on the tail and just wrapped himself, you know, arms and legs around the tail. And then the shark dived to the bottom and, and I'm just hanging on. Then I felt shame tugging on my back. So, yeah, I let go and just bolted to the surface. And he'd put the rope on the shark's tail. And we got to the surface and we looked down and the shark was just hanging there, doing nothing. And it's just like, wow. So we hopped in and I wanted to go down and check. So we put the scuba gear on. So we jumped straight in and went over to the tiger. And I just wanted to see how it was handling it. And went over and it was breathing really well. And as we got closer to it, it would sort of lurch at us. So it was quite aware and all that kind of stuff. So that's when I first thought, well, this is a interesting way to deal with a large shark without having to hook it. And cause, so, so it became really still. Oh, yeah, within a few seconds. So 
Why? And, why? What, what, what is it that makes the shark go still once its tail is Yeah, I don't really... Wrapped? No, I mean, one thing I think is like, you know, because the tail is secured and under pressure, you know, because it's tied to a rope and there's some tension behind it, that's the propulsion unit of a shark, you know, the tail. And if it can't move, it really can't do anything. So I think the animal sort of just gives up and... Just waits for something and just to waits, change. Yeah, waits right. for something to change. And when you see sharks mating, you know... Uh, you'll see big sharks will come together and um, the males will bite the females and hold them down and mate with them and stuff like that. So I think there's a whole, there's something in there sort of programming that if I can't move, I'll just stay still and wait for something to change. Yeah, I'd expect it to thrash around wildly and bite at anything. No, it doesn't. No. And that's, I mean, it, it's it's made our life, well, my life, a hell of a lot easier in, in working with these animals. And it works at different scales of sharks too, like the little white tips we talked about earlier. You know, I catch them underwater, I put a box of food down, and when the shark comes up to the box, I grab it by the tail and, and put a lasso on. But what I found with the little reef sharks is you grab the tip of the tail and you squeeze really hard, they just stop swimming. You know, they're just like, oh, it's, so, it's like a pressure point or something. Um, but that meant, you know, no hook. You know, if you hook a shark like a tiger, um, you know, when I first started doing stuff on tigers to get them close enough to tail rope, um, I actually used barbless hooks in the early days. And but it would still take 15, 20 minutes of fighting and playing a shark to get it close enough to the boat that then I'd jump in the water and put a, a tail rope on it to secure it. And um, 60 Minutes did a story on it and because um, I just told the university, yeah, I'm tagging tiger sharks, but that was it. I didn't say how or what or why. And, um, yeah, when the uni saw... What I was doing, they had a few issues on OH&S. I don't know why, but very conservative. Um, but then they said, no more tiger research until you can do something safe. And that's when I came up with this whole idea of the shark claw. Yeah. You know, how not a day goes by when I don't think to myself, honestly, if I could have a decent working shark claw, life would be so much easier. It's, exactly. <laughs> uh, how does the shark claw work? Well, it's like a handcuff. So um, it's attached to a pole. And so when the shark swims past so we still put baits in the water and so when the tiger swims up to the boat then we can just lean over the pole and snap this like handcuff around the um the tail of the shark and then the shark will swim off and it's it comes off the pole but there's a rope attached to it and then we have a, a really big large fender boy sort of like sort of a meter wide so the shark swims off and it drags this massive float and then same thing because it's got that drag and the tension on it. The shark, after about thirty seconds, will just stop and just hang. Just, and just hang. Just hang. What, what like dangle? You just mean in the water? Just dangle straight down. And we just pull, pull it up, put a safety rope on, and then you know either tow the shark into the shallows or back to the the mother boat to um, do the tagging. But you know, thirty seconds, a minute at the most, to immobilise a you know four or five metre shark without hooks. It's awesome and. We find that once we've tagged the shark and let it go, it starts you know, going, reverting back to natural behaviour a lot quicker than you know, the, the poor old ones that we used to use the barbless hooks on. So it shows less signs of stress. Definitely less signs of stress, yeah. So you do this to tag the shark now. What have you found out about these tiger sharks since you've been able to tag them? Well, quite a few things. One thing is that the tigers are at places like Rain Island for the turtle nesting season, but once the um, the nesting season's over, the tigers move as well, you know, and they go thousands of kilometres. So they're migrating thousands of kilometres to Rain Island. Uh, so they have this impeccable navigation, internal navigation system. 
And the other thing, really surprising thing with the Tigers is once we started looking at all their plots, you know, where they were going, they were spending a lot of time out in the Coral Sea. Now, before that, we used to think of the Tigers being a reef-associated shark. These things are spending all this time out in the blue water. So then we started putting other tags on them, which gave us um, you know, not only position but depth profiles. And we found that the Tigers were swimming down to over 400 metres. So again, this well, is where it's the, dark. Well, it's, yeah, it's really dark and really cold. And so this always, this is one of those things I said earlier is like, when, you know, when you do shark research and working on these animals, you always end up with more questions than answers. So what is a tiger doing at 400 metres? Is there food down there? Oh, there's, there's possibly a lot of food on there. It could be uh, lowering its metabolic rate because it's colder water to try and conserve energy. And they do this yo-yo behavior from the surface down to 350, 400 meters. An hour later, they'll come back to the surface and go back down again. So, you know, this whole gliding could be helping to conserve energy or they're sampling different layers of water for food. Um, Do they sleep? Do sharks sleep? Oh, the things like tigers and great whites are constantly on the move. You know, they don't, they're, they're not like the white tips and the epaulets, which can sit and, and rest. So um, the only time these big sharks rest is when they're doing these glides. So for it to go from the surface to, you know, 400 metres over an hour, it wouldn't have to swim at all. So that could be its rest periods. Um, we've actually started putting video cameras on the back of these sharks now as well. So we can actually visually see, you know, what is it they're doing down there. Um, but yeah, we still don't know. It's It's a bit of a mystery, but... Yeah, that's what makes all this shark research interesting. You have had the privilege of riding on the back of a tiger shark. Just explain what that sensation is like to ride on the back. I'm assuming you're holding on to the pectoral fin, or the dorsal yeah, fin. Yeah, onto the dorsal. It's, um, it is the best part of the job, really, I must say. Is, uh, so once we've clawed the shark and we put the satellite tag on, then it's time to, to let it go. And because the tiger's been restrained, it, it has to know that it can sort of swim again. So what we found is the best thing to do is actually... You know, you take the rope off the tail, hold the shark up horizontally, hang onto the dorsal fin, and then just start swimming it. And it quickly realizes that the tail's unrestrained, and you can just feel the, the tail starting to move. And, you know, you pat the side of the shark as you're going along. You pat it. it. Yeah, because you can feel like the lactic acid has built up inside the muscles a bit. So it's a bit tense. So, you know, give it a bit of a massage. And then you can feel the, the muscles loosening up and, and, then you actually feel that you're getting dragged through the water now, you know, like the people do hanging onto the back of the dolphins up at SeaWorld and all that kind of stuff. And then, you know, the shark is picking up pace and you can just feel the power of the animal sort of radiating up through that dorsal fin as you're going along. And it, you feel its muscles, like its, its powerful muscles ripple underneath you? Oh, yeah. It's, um, especially when you pat it. They're beautiful animals to pat, actually, I must say. And they got, they're really nice and squishy on the belly. Um, but um, adorable, adorable they are. It's like big pussy cats. But yeah, it's just it's a surreal experience. And so we only I only hang on there for until I know it's you know picked up the power and all that kind of stuff, and it's okay to go. Then let it go, and then you just watch it swim off into the blue. And then to think that okay, we'll be following that animal now from space for the next couple of months or whatever it's through satellite awesome. tracking. Yeah. yeah, through the satellite. Yeah, it's awesome feeling. Uh, recently, Anna Crean, the journalist, was on the program talking about animals and. And she was explaining what happened in Yellowstone National Park in the United States when they got rid of wolves. Wolves were a danger. They were a menace. They were killing the ox, which are nice creatures, uh, and would occasionally maybe attacking a human every once in a blue moon or something, or uh, they were troublesome. So it was thought, well, we can help the environment, naively, by removing the apex predator. 
And the whole thing was a catastrophe. And you, you're pulling the face that says you just knew that instantly is because, yeah. of course, that meant the elk went everywhere. They started denuding the landscape. The beavers' uh, landscape was uh, habitat was destroyed. Uh, so they reintroduced wolves. And it's not popular. Now, you're on a crusade to defend the shark as the apex predator of, of where it is. Is it a similar situation? If you remove the apex predator, you think, well, all fish will live in peace and harmony. That's not quite right, is it? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, what, the example you just gave was, Excellent, because it's on land and you can visually, and people can see what the results are quite quickly. And, you know, that you remove the wolves and there was a cascading effect all the way down through the entire food chain. And, you know, you had, you can have animals overpopulate, then you can have disease issues come in, and um, then you can have Secondary whole predators come in yeah, and they're no, exactly. no good at killing the elk, but they kill everything else. Yep. But the same thing happens in the marine world, but because it's in the marine world and it's obscured from our view, you know, it's really hard to see and sample. Um, it's really hard to give people that, that, to show them those kind of things that are happening but it's definitely happening out out there i've been to i've dived all around the world you know i did a lot of work in the philippines and indonesia where there are no sharks and the whole reef food chain is just upside down you know you have um, whole fish groups you know the big fish have been removed and so you have things like scorpion fish like stonefish and lionfish and now become the dominant predators in those areas and you have and because they've they um herbivores have been taken out the reefs are now smothered in algae um so you know to keep the reef and all marine environments healthy particularly in uncertain times of global warming and stuff like that we need to keep them as resilient as possible and that the highest the higher level of resilience we have the better they'll be able to cope with change and that means having a, a balanced community at all levels and that includes the sharks so we definitely need these top order predators out there doing what they do uh, to keep everything else below in check. Humans are really narcissistic, though, aren't we? We project all our own stuff onto animals, and they're not sharks. They're actually monsters in the eyes of a lot of people because they're, they're going to come and get us. They're going to come and kill us. They're monsters, aren't they? This is what you're up against, isn't it? It is, and that's why, you know, through making the documentaries and stuff like that, because I'm, I'm in this blurry world of science and media and, you know, just trying to change people's perceptions about what sharks are and that you know so we showed weird sharks like the epaulette and the wobbegong in, in this series and then when it came to the tiger part of the of the documentary we went to pains to say they're not there eating the live turtles it's a smart shark they're there eating dead turtles so they're actually doing us a favor by being you know the garbage collectors so hopefully through the documentary making stuff like that it will change people's perceptions of um, what these animals are and how critical their roles are in the environment but yeah we're still up against jaws from the 70s oh, no. you know? uh, just just one final thing i'm going to ascribe a human characteristic to a, an animal of the sea which is curiosity i've had a few stories about whales the curiosity of whales at, at times they seem to be interested in humans have you had a whale come up and have a good look at you yeah we worked on these whales called dwarf minky whales this it's an amazing experience being in the water with these whales and it's an in-water tourist activity that people can do and the whales come to watch the people. It's not the other way around. So you can hang on these ropes and have all these whales swimming around you. And I remember that when we were filming, I was on scuba filming a couple of whales in front of me. And I felt this bang across my butt. And I turned around and here's this big eye looking at me. And huh. I'm thinking, did you just whack me on the butt? And there was this whale just hovering right behind me. And I was watching it and it came out with its peck fin and tapped me again and then swam off. Like with a mischievous little grin on its face. And what was like, that about? I have no idea, but they're just, they're so playful. They're big animals. They're about nine metres long. And to have them zipping around you and 
they really love people. I mean, the, the, all these um, minky experiences up there are all done on the whale's terms. If they don't want to be there, they go off. They come to play with people. So we're amusing to them like monkeys, oh, essentially. I, I think we look like very weird bubble-blowing sort of wet apes underwater and I think the whales are coming in and just having a laugh. Dude, what are you doing here? (laughs) Exactly. How do you swim around with those things? It's ridiculous. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today, Richard. I've so enjoyed this. Thank you so much for being my guest in conversation. Thank you very much, Richard. You've been listening to my conversation with Richard Fitzpatrick from 2012. Richard went on to win an Emmy Award for his cinematography on the series Great Barrier Reef. And since we spoke, he's continued to make documentaries. He now has 150 under his belt and works in marine research. He's also published a memoir called Shark Tracker, Confessions of an Underwater Cameraman. Thank you for listening to this episode from our summer podcast series. You can find the rest of the series and thousands more conversations on the ABC Listen app.